scripture reading that I'm going to be reading today is uh, from the book of Luke, chapter 4, uh, 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bury you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this sovereign scripture. Uh, there's not one of us here that doesn't need to hear it or anybody out there watching us online. We ask for your strength in this temptation that this world throws at us, and we ask for our leaders of this church to be protected as well, and that they uh, are granted that authority that you give them to preach this to us, Lord. We give thanks for everything we have, and we pray it in your precious name. Amen. Thanks, Jason. Uh, so before we begin, I just want to mention, I, th I think a lot of us know, it sounds like probably Josiah talked about it during Sunday school, uh, but a number of our kids were at Lake Ann last week. In fact, if you're here and you're at Lake Ann, can you stand up? I know there's a crew of them right here. None over there. Okay. Uh, yeah, you guys can, well, stay standing, because the reason I want them to stand is so that you guys know who went to camp and seek them out after church, or take them out to lunch or something. They might make you go broke, but <laughs> invite them over for lunch. Uh, but ask them how it went, how you can pray for them, how the Lord worked in their lives. Uh, encourage them to keep on in the Lord. And but yeah, we're thankful for you guys, and you guys can sit down now. <laughs> uh, there, were, there were more that went too that, that aren't here this morning, but just, just so you guys are mindful of that, and encourage them, right? Uh, come, come alongside them. So Luke 4, 1 through 13, uh, this is our third time looking at Luke chapter 4. We've considered how Jesus is the second Adam, how, all, how Adam, the first Adam, failed, and how Israel, God's son, failed, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, did not fail. He walked right into the lion's den and overcame temptation. He's the faithful son who will deliver us. Uh, we've also considered how Satan tempts us. We walked through the text and looked at the ways how we tempted the Lord Jesus Christ and considered
considered how uh, he's at work in our own lives to, to tempt us. A very similar way he tempts the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning and next week, uh, the topic from these verses is going to be how to overcome temptation. Uh, how, how we can fight the good fights. And maybe you've thought some of these things to yourself before, or you've, you've uttered some of these phrases out loud before. Maybe you've said or felt or thought, I can't help myself. Or, I, no matter how hard I try, I just can't stop. Or, I feel overwhelmed. I, I don't know why I keep doing this, but I, I keep doing this over and over and over. It's, it's so hard to say no. It's so hard to stop. Have you ever felt that or uttered those words? And if so, then you know the power of temptation. Temptation is powerful. Not only powerful, it is also pervasive. It's ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere. There's no such thing as a temptation-free zone. Even here at church, right, there are temptations. Everywhere you go, temptations abound. If Jesus was tempted, you will be tempted. In fact, it might sound a bit paradoxical, but when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you simultaneously were at peace and at war, right? Praise God that when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, received him as your Lord and Savior, became a child of God, your sins were forgiven, you were reconciled with God the Father, and you had that oneness, that peace with him. But with that peace, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, and the Holy Spirit is holy and wants you to be holy and begins waging war. War against sin and temptation and Satan. So when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you simultaneously are at peace with God, but at war with sin and temptation. What is more, not only is temptation powerful, not only is it everywhere, man, it comes in so many different ways. Uh, it's nuanced, it's subtle. Sometimes it's bold and daring. Uh, but it, it comes in many different ways to seek to fulfill our appetites. Maybe we're, we're tempted with money or, or fleeting pleasures or uh, we're tempted by the things that we, we see with our eyes or uh, we're tempted to put ourselves at the center of everything. Maybe you're tempted uh, to be a people pleaser. Uh, maybe when life is moving along so well and there's no trouble, you're tempted to think, ah, I'm, not, I'm not sure I need God. Uh, maybe you're prone to fear or prone to sexual temptation or prone to doubt God's goodness. That's a big one often, to doubt that God is for you and not against you as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're tempted to think this way. Maybe sometimes you think, man, how can I be a Christian when I'm tempted like that? How can I be a Christian uh, and, and think that way? Maybe that's the way the temptation comes. So temptation is powerful. It's everywhere, and it's subtle. It, it, it tempts us in many different ways. So the big question this morning and next week is, how do we fight temptation? How do we overcome temptation? How do we battle against it? And maybe this morning you're tired of the battle. Maybe this morning... Uh, your flesh uh, is, is exhausted. Maybe this morning it feels too hard spiritually. 
emotionally, physically, to keep waging that war against sin. Maybe the thought of another day or even another hour of wrestling against that temptation or that sin just overwhelms you and it's, it's too much to handle or think about. So, so how do we overcome that? How do we press on? How, how do we fight that good fight? And, and the answer this morning and next week is going to be very simple. The answer is you do it the same way Jesus did it. You do it the same way Jesus did it. And maybe your response to that, if I can try and read your minds for a second, maybe your response to that is, well, that's all well and great, Pastor Andrew, but Jesus couldn't sin. So how am I supposed to overcome sin and temptation the same way that Jesus overcame temptation? He was God. He couldn't sin. And that's, that's true. The, the theological word for it, it's kind of fun to say, is the impeccability of Christ. I'm going to call you at three in the morning and ask you about the impeccability of Christ, and I, I expect a very thorough answer. And that answer would be unable to sin. That's what the impeccability of Christ means, not able to sin. Jesus was not able to sin. Not only was he sinless, he was impeccable. But catch this, because this is huge, and I think we often miss this, and I think we do a disservice when we come to Luke 4, and we kind of rip the heart out of this text because we miss this. When Jesus overcame the temptation, he overcame it as a man. He overcame the temptation in his humanity. He didn't use his deity to kind of overrule his humanity and overcome that temptation. No, he overcame temptation using the same tools that we have accessible to us as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, could Jesus sin? No, that's impossible. He was God, but that is not why he didn't sin. He didn't sin because he was God. He didn't sin because he had the same tools that we have. And next, this morning and next week, we're going to unpack these things. He had a heightened awareness to sin. That's point number one this morning. He also was empowered by the Spirit. That's point number two this morning. Next week, we're going to see how he lived in the Word. And also next week, we're going to see how he looked up to the Father. And those four things he uses to overcome temptation. And those are four things that you and I can use to overcome temptation. We're going to unpack those as we go. I want to, before I do that, though, share an illustration with you uh, from Dr. Bruce Ware. Uh, it comes from his book called The Man, Christ Jesus, Theological Reflections on the Humanity of Christ. And he's going to unpack, uh, I, I think it's a great illustration, about how Jesus overcame sin in his humanity, not using his godhood, but in his humanity. He says this, imagine a high school student who excels in math, and that is extremely hard for me to imagine because that was my worst, by far my worst subject in school. If I can get two plus two, I'm happy. Uh, but a major exam is coming, uh, one for which uh, this teacher has allowed the students to use calculators, and that, that blows my mind even today that teachers allowed that, man, that would have been the heights of whatever, if I had brought a calculator into a math test. Uh, but this, this student 
chooses to keep his calculator in his pocket through the entire exam. He knows that if he uses the calculator, uh, the exam, for him at least, would be a breeze and he would get a perfect score with no problem whatsoever. But instead, he does all the equations longhand on paper and in his mind, which just blows my mind. He's committed to working his hardest to ace the exam without using that calculator, though he could. When the exams are returned, there's only one student who gets a 100, and guess who that is? It's this student. A friend from another class hears about his perfect score and says to him, well, yeah, of course you got a perfect score. Your teacher lets you use a calculator. I mean, who couldn't get a perfect score if you can use a calculator? And his response to that is, you know what, you're right, but I didn't use my calculator. It stayed in my pocket the entire time. So Dr. Bruce Ware says this, quote, why is it that our gifted student in taking this exam could not have failed to get a perfect score? He could have used his calculator, assuring him that he'd get 100%. But why is it that our gifted student did not fail to get a perfect score on the exam? The answer is he used his head and worked hard. The presence of the calculator was irrelevant to our students achieving his perfect score. Therefore, Ware writes, although Christ was fully God, and as fully God, he could not sin, he deliberately did not appeal to his divine nature in fighting the temptations that came to him. Like the, like the student who deliberately didn't use the calculator, Jesus deliberately didn't use his divine nature. Quote, as a human, he not only could be tempted, but was tempted in the greatest ways any human has been tempted in all of history. Yet for every temptation, he fought and resisted fully and totally apart from any use of or appeal to his intrinsic divine nature. That's, that's huge. And I, I know maybe we dived a little bit deep there for a second, but that's good for us to see this and think about this and should be immensely encouraging to us as Christians this morning to realize that Jesus did not sin, not because he relied on the supernatural power of his divine nature, not because his divine nature overpowered or overruled his human nature. Jesus did not sin because he utilized the resources given to him. And again, that should encourage us so much this morning because it means we can do the same. We can walk in that path. We, we can follow his example. We can defeat Satan and sin and temptation in that same way. Maybe if I say it this way, imagine, imagine a, a credit card. And the credit card is the true master card. It's the deity card. Uh, it's the God card. And the expiration on that, on that card is eternity. And the credit limit on that card is eternity. Jesus had that God card, didn't he? But when he's tempted, he doesn't pull that God card out. When Satan comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God, Jesus replies not by pulling out his God card, but he replies in his humanity, relying on the Spirit, aware of the situation, living in God's Word, trusting in his Father. That's the path forward for us. And we're going to unpack that the next couple of weeks. So point number one, how do I overcome temptation? How do I fight the good fight? A heightened awareness. 
I say this because Jesus was not caught off guard by Satan's temptations. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So, and I pointed this out a few weeks ago, if you can remember that far back, Jesus wasn't ambushed. Satan didn't surprise attack Jesus. Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends, and he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to wage war with Satan, to overcome him, to show that he is the true, faithful, obedient son who will overcome and in whom we must trust uh, for our salvation. So Jesus knew going in, he was going to face the satanic wiles of sin. So we learn, I think, from that, this very important lesson that we should never be surprised by temptation. We should never be surprised by temptation. Jesus walks right into it. He, he wasn't surprised by it. We should wake up in the morning knowing temptation will hit me today, some way, some shape, somehow. It's coming. Watch and pray, Jesus teaches us, right? What does that mean? It means be alert, be on guard. Watch out. Be proactive in your fight against temptation. Maybe, maybe you've seen that movie. It's, it's an older movie. It's called We Were Soldiers. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a movie set in the Vietnam War. There is a battalion of 400 U.S. soldiers who are surrounded by an army division of 4,000. Yikes, right? Vietnam, totally strange land. Uh, but 400 U.S. soldiers surrounded by an army division of 4,000. Night comes upon them, and the men hunker down for a long night, and they, uh, they lay prone on the ground to, so that they can see, but also to reduce visibility for enemy to be able to see them. But they, they lay down prone on the ground. Now, if you're in, in, in the heat of battle and you're surrounded, it's been going 24-7 for several days, you're surrounded by the enemy, and you lay down, you're what? You're tired. There's a chance that maybe you're going to nod off, and in this movie, they show uh, that a number of these soldiers, as they're laying prone on the ground, would put toothpicks in the ground right under their chin. So that if they start to nod off, what happens, right? Pricks and that wakes you up. Man, that's watching out, right? That's, that's taking everything you need to take to make sure that you're alert, you're going to stay on guard, and you're going to be able to, to, to fight the good fight. And I think as Christians, we need that mentality, we need the mentality, and we need, need to, to be ready and, and expecting and have this heightened awareness so we're not caught off guard in this war against sin. Because so often we are. We need to be proactive. You need to be, have, a, have a heightened awareness uh, to maybe some, some circumstances in which you are vulnerable. It's called the, the Joseph principle, right? When, when Joseph's boss, boss's wife, kept trying to seduce him, what did he do? He ran, right? That's, that's the Joseph principle, and you, you, you see that all through Scripture, this heightened awareness that in this situation which I, I am in, temptation is going to come, and seeking to avoid that or flee from that in any way that you can. What do you do with sin and temptation? I'll tell you what I sometimes do, and I think a lot of us sometimes do. Sin and temptation comes, and instead of running, you just kind of stand there. And maybe hope that maybe somehow you overcome this. <laughs> the Bible teaches move away from it, if possible. And I understand there's times where we're not able to do that. But 2 Timothy 2, verse 22 says, Flee youthful lusts. 
In Proverbs 7, it warns of a young man who it's nighttime and he's passing along, he's walking along, and he passes along the street near the corner where a well-known adulteress lives. He's not avoiding, is he? He's not fleeing. And you can maybe hear the rationalizations in his mind. You know, you, you can maybe hear him say, well, well, I'm not going there, I'm going somewhere else. I'm, I'm going to church to pray. It just so happens that that's where she lives and I have to walk by there, right? We're, we're amazing at our rationalizations, our, our justifications. We're amazing at covering things up I want to say this morning, imagine, imagine if we spent half the energy running from sin as we do what? Rationalizing it and trying to cover it up. Imagine if we did that. Solomon asked the question in Proverbs 6, verses 27 and 28, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? And obviously the point of that is it's, it's foolish to stick your hand in the fire and leave it in the fire and pray to God and say, Lord, don't let my hand get burned. Give me the strength or the intervention or the protection or whatever you would pray. And I can't help but just flash in my mind as I, as I think about that. Uh, there's, if you guys know Tim Hawkins, he's the, the Christian comedian, and there's this one, I haven't seen a lot of it, so if he says things that aren't great, I, I apologize, but uh, there's this one where he talks about Christians, ask God to bless food before you eat it, and he talks about, uh, he's chugging Doritos or something in a Mountain Dew, <laughs> Lord, change the molecular structure of this Mountain Dew and this whatever as it goes down my goal and bless it to my body. You know, like, like, like that, that, that kind of idea, right? Is God going to somehow intervene and, and take that food that's bad for your body and somehow make it work for good for your body? You know, kind of that idea, if you stick your hand in the fire and keep it there and you pray for God, intervene, it's nonsense, Right? Paul exhorts us in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and watch what he says after that, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Did, did you catch that phrase? Make no provision for the flesh. Don't make any provision. Avoid temptation. Don't trust yourself. Don't stick your hand in the fire and pray for opportunity to, to be protector or whatever. Don't, don't give flesh that opportunity to gratify its desires. So what you need to do as a result of the sermon, what I need to do, what I've been doing this week, is you need to ask yourself, where am I susceptible? What do I need to avoid in my life? Maybe it's saying no to food or the temptation to shop or maybe it's turning off the television or, or something with social media, but this heightened awareness to areas in which you are vulnerable. Also, we need to have a heightened awareness to our own personalities and quirks in which we are susceptible. Perhaps you're prone to anger or bitterness or laziness. You need to be on guard there. John Owen, in his wonderful work on temptation, writes this, he says, become acquainted with your own spirit. Become acquainted with your natural temperament, your lusts and corruptions, your natural sinful or spiritual weaknesses. By finding where your weakness lies, 
you may be better able to keep at a distance from all occasions of sin. That's wonderful pastoral wisdom. By finding where you are weak, where you are prone, where you are susceptible, where your inclinations are, you are then able to keep at a distance from those occasions of sin. You need to know yourself. You need to know where you're weak, where that, that chink is in your armor and be on guard. Maybe you're naturally shy. And what is it that comes with that? What are some, some susceptibilities that you have as one who is naturally shy? Maybe it's you're, you're prone to want to, f- to please people. You're prone to n- avoid conflict, right? Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe, maybe you're not shy. Uh, maybe you're more aggressive. You're naturally aggressive. And what you struggle with is you're quick to point out the faults of others. Maybe you're melancholy and rejoicing in the Lord is difficult for you. Maybe you're zealous, but you have no discernment. That list could go, could go on and on. There's just so, so many examples there, but maybe, maybe you're rash or hasty in making decisions. Maybe when you're at work and, and listening to a coworker complain a lot drags you down or makes you start complaining. Or here's a big one that, that might be an ouch to some of us. Maybe... Maybe you watch hours and hours and hours of political TV. And the more you watch that, the more angry you get and the less you love the people around you. Is that an ouch or is that an amen? (laughs) What we need to pray, what I need to pray is, Lord, what is the sin that easily besets me? Then keep watch. Be on guard. Another way to have heightened awareness is just to remember that sin and temptation is so deceptive. I can't emphasize that enough, that what makes temptation so tempting is it presents itself so wonderful. And the answer to all your problems is so sweet, it's so pleasurable, it's so satisfying. Temptation woos us, it flatters us, it flirts with us, it seduces us. Be on guard against that. Remember that temptation always over-promises and what? Under-delivers. It always does that. Sin will promise you joy, but it brings pain. Sin promises happiness, but it brings shame. Sin promises life, but brings death. It promises freedom, but brings bondage and guilt and shame. It promises you heaven, but gives you hell. That's sin. Have that heightened awareness. When temptation comes along and it looks so great, it's over-promising and it's going to under-deliver every single time. So how do we overcome temptation? We have that heightened awareness. We have the heightened awareness to where we're susceptible Uh, personality-wise, circumstance-wise, but we also have the heightened awareness to the insidiousness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, and how it's always at work. The second point this morning, I love this point, is relying on the Spirit. The second way in which we overcome temptation, the same way that Jesus overcame temptation, is not just a heightened awareness, but then we just throw ourselves, we cast ourselves on the Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ, his whole life was just saturated with the Holy Spirit 
I'll just remind you of a few things. In Luke 1, verse 35, we see he was conceived by the Spirit. In Luke 4, 18, he says he's anointed by the Spirit. In Luke 4, 1, and in Luke 4, 14, so uh, that's, that's the two bookends to where we're at. Luke 4, 1, Luke 4, 14, we're told that Jesus was led by the spirits. In Luke 10, 21, we're told that Jesus rejoiced in the spirits. In Matthew 12, 28, it says Jesus performed miracles by the power of the spirit. Paul records in Romans 8, 11, that Jesus was raised by the spirits. A life lived in the Spirit, yes? And all of this is summed up well in an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. In the Old Testament one, Isaiah chapter 11, 1 through 3, it says about the Messiah, about Jesus, that uh, he shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So where did Jesus get his wisdom, his understanding, his counsel, his knowledge, his fear? Where did it come from? Isaiah 11, the spirit. His inner character comes from the spirits. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says this, you know this is Peter when he's talking to a crowd, Acts 10.38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The Spirit was in him. So his inner character, his wisdom, his knowledge, his counsel, the fear of the Lord, that's from the Spirit, and his preaching and his teaching and his healing, his miracles, that's from the Spirit. It's all from the Spirit. Jesus lived life in the Spirit, and the same Spirit that was in the Lord Jesus Christ is where right now, if you're trusting in him by faith, is dwelling within you, yes? The same Spirit that Jesus relied upon to, uh, to live the life he was called to live, to be the obedient son, to resist temptation, that same spirit is within us. Are, are you seeing that? Does that give you goosebumps? That's, that's exciting truth. The very same spirit. Has, has it ever occurred to you how privileged we are, brothers and sisters in Christ, to live post Pentecost, where the, the Spirit comes down upon the, the, the apostles. We are living in the new covenant ministry of the Spirit, with the Spirit dwelling within us and empowering us to be who He calls us to be and to bear the fruit of the Spirit to the glory of our Father. How amazing that is. Turn, turn with me, if you would, to Romans 8, just, just to kind of get a, a bigger understanding of this. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. I still hear a bunch of pages turning, and I love that sound, so I will wait till I don't hear that to make sure we're all there. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. God's Word says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that, that's pretty clear, huh? Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life 
because of righteousness. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your models, mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And the word I want to focus on is the word dwell in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That's, that, that's a key word. That's also found in verse 9. The spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, then verse 11 dwells. The Spirit of God does not dwell in you like a bus stop or a, a plain layover, right? It's not this temporary layover or stopover. The Spirit has taken up residence within you. You are His home, in fact, maybe your translation, instead of dwelling, actually says abode or home, because that's the literal rendering of that word. You are his house, his home. The point to that is nearness, influence, familiarity. If, if someone makes your house their house, <laughs> you get to know each other pretty quick, pretty quick, right? Like it or not, you become pretty familiar with one another. You're pretty close to one another. You start to learn things about one another uh, that you maybe wanted to know, didn't want to know. But you also begin to influence each other, right? As you live in the same household together, you have an influence on each other. So because the Spirit dwells within you, lives within you, the same one that lived in Christ within us, you should have and will have a life increasingly under the control of the Spirit. You will live and act more like Jesus Christ. You will increasingly hate what he hates and love what he loves and forgive what he forgives and, and on and on with that. And I can't help but think personally in my own life if, if, if I could just live in this reality every day, every moment of every day, that the Spirit of God dwells in me. And if we as a church could live in this reality every day, what if Orangeville Day, Orangeville day were living in this reality? What if as we do Sunday school and as we have Word of Life and as we have youth group, as we have the marriage retreat, what if as husbands and wife in our homes, uh, our brothers and sisters in our homes, and we're living in this reality, the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's amazing to think about. It's amazing to think about. To just remember that my, my tongue is not my own. I'm not free to use my tongue to yell at my family. My eyes are not my own. I'm not free to look at whatever I want to look at lustfully or greedily or jealously. My money is not my own to use as I please. My time is not my own. My, my life is not my own. See, the, the Spirit of God dwelling in you is this life-transforming principle. And I, I meant to bring a, a glove up here this morning. I wish I had, but... Maybe I wasn't relying on the Spirit. My memory failed me. Uh, but, but there's this great illustration from Corey Ten Boom who talks about the analogy between a glove and your hand and the Holy Spirit. And she holds this glove, and the glove's just flopping there, right? A glove is a glove. It's nothing without a hand in it, right? A glove is useless without a hand in it. And her point is, we are that glove, and the Holy Spirit is the hand that fills that glove and gives it use and she makes the point that it's our job to make room for the, for the hand so that every finger is filled, right? It's our job to make room for the Spirit in our life so the Spirit can use us and move us and dwell and abide in us in whatever way it leads and moves for 
the glory of the Father and the Son. That's incredible to think about. And that's what Romans 8, 9 through 11 is showing us. And that's what Jesus did as he lived his life. He was filled and led and powered by the Spirit. Man, I hope we never get over the joy of this. I hope each day we can wake up with this fresh renewal of mind that the Spirit of God lives within me. Do, do, you, ever, do you ever read the Bible, like maybe in the Old Testament, and, and you read about the, the pillar of fire by, by night and the pillar of cloud by day and how it, it led Israel through the wilderness? Do you ever stop and think like, man, I wish I could have been there and seen that? Or, or do you ever think maybe some of the things that Jesus did, like he turns the water into wine, or, or how about when, when Nicodemus, uh, he raises it from the dead, and you think, man, I wish I could have been there to see that. Well, here's why I bring that up, because what I think is that the people in Moses' day and the people in Jesus' day, you know what I think they're saying is, I wish we had what you got. Because you guys, you have the new covenant. You have the Spirit living in you, abiding in you 24-7, empowering you to be who he calls you to be. We didn't have that. You have that. What a blessing. What a privilege. What an amazing truth that is. We should never get over it. Now, why has the Spirit done this? Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, right? So then, so why is the Spirit dwelling within us? Why are we empowered by the Spirit? So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, so we're able to overcome sin, we're able not to sin. But verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, there's a contrast between the flesh and the spirit, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So looking at that, why does the Spirit dwell within you? Why has the Spirit empowered you? Why, why do you have the Spirit-filled life? It's twofold, right? One, so that you are no longer debtor to the flesh. You're no longer a debtor to sin. You were able not to sin. You were able to live a life of righteousness before the Father. Not perfectly. But secondly, according to verse 13, so that you can kill the flesh, or put to death the deeds of the body. The old way of saying that is mortification. Now, when we say mortify today, we don't mean at all what they meant a couple hundred years ago, or maybe even 50 to 100 years ago. When we say mortify today, we mean, man, I'm so embarrassed. I'm mortified, right? But biblically, the word mortification means to kill, to put to death. According to these verses, why has the Spirit taken up residence within you so that you can kill sin in the power of the Spirit? So that you can be putting to death sin and temptation. That temptation that we opened up by talking about that's everywhere and it seems so powerful and ubiquitous. The Spirit of God has taken up residence within you so you can crush it and kill it and walk in obedience as a faithful son and daughter to the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how, again, John Owen, to quote him, he said in his book on mortification of sin that you must be killing sin before it kills you. The only power sin has in your life is the power you give it when you refuse to take advantage of the sin-crushing power of the Holy Spirit. 
So in the power of the Spirit, we are able to resist temptation. We are able to deal ruthlessly with sin. There's a great example of this on the movie, if you've seen the movie Fireproof with Kirk Cameron. Uh, in that movie, he's struggling with pornography, and, and his, his wife, they're having a relationship struggles. There's this one scene in the movie, I, I forget exactly how it goes, but what's painted in my mind is where he takes that computer, and he walks outside with it, and he smashes it to the ground. And I, he might even take a bat or something and start like hitting it, I can't quite remember. Uh, but that's, that's the idea, isn't it? That's why the Spirit's taken up residence within us, right? To deal ruthlessly with sin. Of course, where we can go deeper with that is it's not the computer that was causing him to sin, right? It's its heart. So we need to deal ruthlessly with your heart, your inner desires, uh, but it's also good to deal ruthlessly with triggers if that computer is a trigger. Now the result, the result of this mortification, according to verse 13, is Romans 8, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, what does it say? You will live. So mortification, man, it sounds so, sounds so hard, right? Sounds so awful, nasty, difficult. But if you don't do it, you'll die. And if you do do it, you'll, you'll live. There's just this incredible contrast there. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you put to death sin by the Spirit, you will live. There is a living that leads to death and a dying that leads to life. This is why our world is so miserable and filled with pain and heartache. Because they're living for the flesh. And our world is filled with, with pain. They're living for satisfaction and pleasure in any way except for Christ. And they're reaping the rewards. Death. The question this morning is which one are you? Are you living to satisfy the flesh which leads to death? Or are you living in the Spirit, putting to death the flesh, and living in his life? Which one are you this morning? Let me put it as bluntly as I could think. Are you living to die? Or are you dying to live? Are you living to die? Or are you dying to live? Do you have the Spirit of God within you? Have you received the Spirit? Are you a child of God? Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, where Paul writes to the, the Christians at Galatia, let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. And Paul writes, you received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. Is the Spirit of God working in your life even now, convicting you of sin and righteousness and judgment? Are you convicted that you know that you're living for the flesh, that you're... you're you're living now, but you're dying because you're living for the flesh. Are you convicted and you want that life that the Spirit gives? Did you hear what it just said in our text? You receive the Spirit because you believe the message heard about Christ. If you would have life eternal, if you would have freedom from sin, if you would have forgiveness of sin, a guilty conscience and shamed, wiped clean, and given the very righteousness of God, it comes by believing the message about Christ who walked into that wilderness, overcame Satan, and kept walking for three more years in faithful obedience to the Lord, sinless perfection, obedience, relying on the Spirit, walked right up to the cross, gave his life for our, our sins, 
died on that cross, three days later rose from the dead. If you believe that message about the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe and know your sin and your guilt and your shame, and you throw it on the Lord Jesus Christ and seek his forgiveness, you will be forgiven. You will receive that spirit. You receive the spirit because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Have you believed? I'll ask again, are you living to die or are you dying to live? So temptation is everywhere. Temptation is powerful. Until Jesus returns, we're going to struggle against it, but we can overcome it. We can overcome it through that heightened awareness. We can overcome it by walking in the Spirit. Let me share one more illustration with you. I think sometimes we, we think wrongly about life in the Spirit. And I'm going to use an analogy. I can't remember where I heard this from, but it, it clicked with me. I hope it clicks with you. Uh, sometimes we think of living in the Spirit kind of like we think about our cars and gas. We got to fill our car up with gas, then we drive all over the place and we empty the car. Then we got to fill it and empty, fill it and empty, fill it and empty, right? And sometimes I think that's how we think about the Christian life. I'm full, then I'm empty. I'm full, then I'm empty. I'm full, then I'm empty. I think the biblical principle is it's more like a monorail. Uh, We were in Twin Cities in Minnesota once, and I, I saw the monorail there. Uh, monorail operates by that third rail, right? And so the idea is the contact principle. You have the, the two rails on the outside and the electrified third rail in the middle. Why or what keeps the monorail going or the elevated train going? As long as the train stays in contact with that third rail, it keeps moving, right? That, I think, is the biblical picture. It's not filling and emptying, filling and emptying, filling and emptying. Too many people seem to think it's like that. They're constantly up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. But the biblical principle seems to be the Spirit is dwelling within you. He's made his abode within you. So when you stay in contact with the Spirit through his word, through prayer, through fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, you're in contact with him, and he's empowering you, and he's strengthening you to fight the good fight against sin and temptation. That's how you overcome sin. You stay in contact with the spirits. And maybe as a Christian this morning, you're, again, you feel beat up. You've had a hard fight with sin. Maybe you lost your fight with sin this week in a, in a, in a big way. Uh, I think we've all, we've all been there. You feel beat up. You feel weak. There, there's a wonderful words in the scriptures about our Savior in Isaiah 42 that says, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Maybe, maybe that's how you feel this morning. Do you feel that way? You're like a smoldering wick or, or a bruised reed. Then confess your sin to the Lord. Remind yourself of the gospel. There is no condemnation. You are justified by faith. God is not super angry with you as a believer. God loves you. Again, there is no condemnation. There's nothing you can do to pry from his love. His love is everlasting. You didn't earn his love, therefore you can't lose his love. That's the nature of being a child of God. Remember that Jesus has called you and he will keep you. Don't let your guard down. Keep your defenses up and don't be afraid to ask for help. We're so prideful, aren't we? 
afraid to ask for help, to say, I need help, I'm really struggling, I'm drowning here, or I'm at the end of my rope here, I, I, I can barely hang on, I need help, will you please help me? You know, when, when leaders, public leaders fall, you know, they, they tend to kind of look at them, their private lives, see what happened, where, where, where do things start to go loose, and they'll often notice that when public, well-known leaders fall, it's because privately they didn't have people in their life telling them what they needed to hear, Right? They didn't have others speaking the truth and love into their lives, and no one really knew what they were going through. And I, I just share that to say this morning that whatever you're going through, you, you need help, and we're here to help. You need godly people in your life, and that's why we offer biblical counseling. That's also why we have growth groups. And I, I know the groups like to kind of jab at each other, and it, it's, it's fun, it's funny. Uh, but the heartbeat of those groups is accountability fellowship, one anothering. And I, I know it can be a pain sometimes to come back out here on Sunday night or Tuesday night or Thursday night or whatever it is your group is, but it's worth it for your soul. It's also worth it for the others who are there. Maybe you're doing great spiritually, but someone else is struggling. And so don't go to growth groups thinking, what can they do for me? If I can steal a line from some famous guy. Go to growth groups and ask, what can I do for my growth group? How can I be an encouragement there? How can I pray for others? How can I help others fight the good fight? Maybe that's going to be you open up and you share, man, I was really tempted with this this week, and here's how the Lord helped me. Or I fell on my face, and I'm so glad the Lord has forgiven me. That's what growth groups are about. So if you're not part of a growth group, I encourage you to inconvenience yourself and become one of them. Uh, isolating yourself leads to temptation. It increases temptation. When we isolate ourselves, we are prone to get stuck with just how we think, and that's scary, right? We need someone outside of us speaking the truth into us. The enemy wants you alone. He wants to lie to you. He wants to shame you. He wants you to make you think you're alone in your struggle, and you're not. You're not alone in your struggle. The temptations you are facing are the very same temptations I face, and everyone in here faces one degree or another.